Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I am very happy to be here with you today, and I am very happy you have invited me into your home so we can have our little discussion, our weekly chat. Um, I will be answering some really fun questions this week, and I just wanted to say that, you know, um, we had such a great, fun um, call-in live show this week on Friday about the subject of tolerance, and I hope you guys get a chance to check that out. Our call-in shows, the Critical Conversation show on Friday, is a live call-in show, and I love talking to you guys. So I really want to encourage you, if you have the ability to check it out, we have a great community forming up there and a cast of characters who call in from time to time routinely, but I'm always interested in more people calling in and engaging and talking and and just sort of thinking more, you know, that's what I'm really all about is kind of thinking about thinking and thinking about things and thinking about life and trying to improve the overall general situation as best I can. I've kind of given up on the whole concept of saving the world. It seems a little bit silly, <laughs> maybe a little hyperbolic. So maybe I'll, you know, kind of bring the level down a little bit to something a little more real. But if I can help you or if you can help me, then maybe we could, maybe we should, you know? And that's kind of what that show is about. It's not about getting into violent arguments with people. It's about finding common ground more than it is about finding disagreements. Although I am more than happy to talk about whatever anybody wants to call in and talk to me about agreements or disagreements. So anyway, just wanted to plug that. And I also wanted to let you guys know that this last week, the 500th critical clip was posted. I think that was on Tuesday. So there have been 500 critical clips posted on my critical clips channel, which is linked below in the description section of this video. And I really encourage you to subscribe to that channel too. It's a separate channel that I have where I just post single answers or, or snippets from podcasts um, to address specific single, you know, things. And they're just little snippets. They can be anywhere from, you know, three minutes to 15, 20 minutes. And um, anyway, I encourage you to check that channel out. Also, I post content there Monday through Friday every week. So, um, so you can get stuff from me seven days a week if you are interested. I have been going chronologically through all my old videos and stuff, and I'm still four years behind. Um, back in 2017 is where I'm pulling clips from now. So it's, uh, it's been a fun process doing that. And uh, then I wanted to say, finally, put a little plug in for my podcast this week. It is the beginning of what we expect to be a little series of podcasts with Cyprian Ivanov, a lawyer friend of mine who has never been a Scientologist, but was raised in a communist country. And, had some, and we have done some shows talking and comparing and contrasting and, and discussing, in this case, the uh, Scientology management and leadership and executive skills as Hubbard lays it out and uh, and critique the, um, the critique them and so uh, and and talk about various aspects of how the uh, organization as an organization is is abusive or is not very functional is very dysfunctional anyway that's what that series is about so you can check that out too those are all my plugs for the week let's get on with your questions now we've got some fun ones Steph CLO I was watching one of your videos recently and thought, have we ever discussed R&D volumes? I recall reading through these after watching The Matrix and thinking, my God, the old man was right. What with his descriptions of bodies in pawn, etc. 
Is this even something people talk about in modern Scientology? It seems like one of those series of volumes that never gets talked about. There was some crazy space opera in those. Hey, thanks for this question. And yeah, the R&D or Research and Discovery volumes were a gimmicky idea on the part of Scientology marketers to take all of Hubbard's lectures, whether they had been released on cassette or CD or not, and release them in chronological order in a series of books called the R&D volumes or the Research and Discovery series. And this was even on a subscription plan for a while until the whole thing tanked after I think they got up to about number 20 or something. There are, they've only gotten, these R&D volumes have only been released up until about 1953 in the chronological sequence of all of Hubbard's lectures. He gave tons and tons of them. And the idea with the R&Ds was if they weren't confidential lectures, they would go in there. And, and this was also the lectures that they could not convert over to good enough sound quality that they could release it on CD or on cassette. So they would release a transcript of it. At least you could read what Hubbard said, even if you couldn't listen to it, because the sound quality was so bad that Gold wouldn't put it out as a audio version, you know, lecture. Um, so that's kind of what the R&D vols are. But let me share with you what's in them, because what you find in some of these lectures that were never released or are not released uh, audio versions are some pretty fantastic, crazy stuff. Um, things that are, well, I, I'm going to read you some of it. I'm going to read you from a, a specific lecture called The Role of Earth. And this lecture is pretty intense in the Scientology world. I heard about this when I was still a staff member way back in the day. And um, by, by that, I mean the late 80s, so long time ago. And, um, and I heard about it, but I could never get the lecture or get the transcript until it finally was released many years later in this R&D volume. And, um, and they haven't produced any new R&D volumes in well over a decade. I mean, they, they, this was supposed to be a thing, maybe 20 years. This was supposed to be a thing where they were going to release them all, and, and it was going to be a subscription plan, and they were going to release one every month or two, and they were just going to pop them out until they were all done. And that whole project just got totally canceled when the whole golden age of tech and basics and all the revisions and everything started. So um, anyway, let me share with you from the scriptures because I think you guys might find this kind of interesting. There are two things in this lecture, and this, this is the kind of stuff that really electrified me when I was a Scientologist because as... They, as Steph asked in the question, um, you know, this is like the Matrix. There's, there's information in this lecture from 1952, and you never hear Hubbard give this lecture because the lecture is not publicly released, um, but you can read it. So I'm going to read you two parts of it that, that highlight two points that I actually believed were true when I was a Scientologist and now wonder what was wrong with my sanity that I ever thought that this was worth looking into. Um, here is literally how the lecture begins, because it's some lectures that were uh, recorded in the early days um, before Hubbard sort of formalized the process. They just start recording, you know, when he's mid-talking, um, you know, kind of introing the lecture or giving a little beforehand stuff. 
Anyway, here is how this starts. Okay, this is Hubbard. A Thetan can go over and take possession of the body of, let's say we want it, let's say we want to influence the premier of Bukwapistan, some made-up country, Bukwapistan. So we boot this Thetan out and make this Thetan go over and knock out the Thetan in the wife of the premier of Bukwapistan. And then we're holding the body of the person that we send over there, and they're still connected and in communication with this body. At which moment, pretty wild, and then it kind of goes off, dot, 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 pretty wild stuff to walk into suddenly, laughter. So we simply monitor now. All of a sudden, we find we're able to monitor the wife of the premier of Bukwapistan with great ease. And we get her into a tremendous affair with a court chamberlain, you see, and we just get things swirled up like a fire drill. And the next thing you know, he's dispossessed. They say his rent's up on Bukwapistan or something of the sort because of scandal, because of this, because of that. It's a very neat political maneuver. Okay, now if none of that made sense to you, and it shouldn't necessarily have, let me translate. What Hubbard is suggesting here, what he's actually saying is that in the past, people on a planet, let's say a, a civic leader or a president or something, could be influenced or could be controlled via his wife, the wife of Bukwapistan, um, by sending an agent in the form of a Thetan, a disembodied Thetan, who is sent to the wife kicks her out of the body, just takes, as a Thetan, she just, she just kicks her out. And this new Thetan takes over the body and is now, to all intents and purposes in the physical world, the wife of the minister or the premier of Buck Wuppistan. And as the agent provocateur hiding in this body, unbeknownst to anybody else around, this wife can then start an affair, create a sex scandal, and get this premier kicked out of office because of all this controversy that they're generating. And then when everything's gone to hell, that Thetan takes off. And maybe the old Thetan was suppressed or maybe they were kicked out, but they are then stuck, left with the, the consequences of all this. And the original Thetan who was running the wife doesn't even know what happened and, of course, didn't do all those horrible things, but is now blamed for all of it and probably goes nuts. That's not particularly laid out in this quote, but I'm just saying this is, the, this is how you could create political unrest or turmoil, uh, knowing about spiritual entities or thetans, knowing about how thetans are and how they control bodies. And if you had that kind of knowledge, then you could create this kind of problem. And Hubbard said that this is the kind of thing that goes on in the universe at large. And it doesn't happen here on Earth uh, by Earth politicians or by anybody here on Earth because we're all so ignorant and stupid and don't know anything about Thetans or how all this really works. But other areas in the galaxy do. And so they use this information to their advantage to create you know, political unrest, uh, that you could carry out political assassinations. You could do almost anything if you could take over other people's bodies. And that's the idea here. So this is how he starts the lecture. And then people are like, oh, my God, what? This happens? And Hubbard's talking about this as though it is absolute fact. 
Okay, let me read you something else. And this is going to be a little insightful for you because he also talks in here in this quote that I'm about to read you about how Hubbard would audit people. And remember I've said that Hubbard would ask leading questions and, and be very evaluative and tell his people, uh, his preclears, the people he was auditing, what to think about their case, what to think about their own past. Well, I'm going to give you an example of exactly what I was talking about there. This is Hubbard talking now, quote, I took a little girl one night during a demonstration and put her on the e-meter. And this little kid, I started to question her. And I was going to ask her about something just to show the class what the series of questions would be about current life. And the next thing you knew, this little kid was shaking in such a degree that the chair legs were rattling against the floor. And she says, you mustn't ask me any questions. You mustn't ask me any questions. You mustn't, you mustn't, you mustn't. She was going all to pieces on the thing. And I said, well, of course, it's perfectly all right for me to ask you questions. So on, where are you? And she said, I'm sitting before a big panel. And she says, it's, it's, I didn't used to sit there. I'm sitting there right now. That's, that's me. I sit in front of this panel. That is my job. This is my job. I'm not supposed to tell you what my job is, but there's this panel and so forth. I said, it's a communicator switchboard. No. And she starts going on. I said, well, you wouldn't mind telling me the codes that go across the panel and she passed right straight on out. Interesting, isn't it? She'd never heard of bodies in pawn or other governments or invader forces or anything of the sort. So I snapped her around and carried on with the rest of the questioning and was simply able to do so because I happened to know, this is a very funny thing to say, but I happened to know her commanding officer. And gave her, silly, isn't it? And gave her the messages which had gone across her panel an hour before, at which moment she immediately quieted down. And she says, well, I'll probably be taking all the pieces in the morning. And so I said, no, you will not. And she wasn't. But she was a communicator who was running a communications switchboard. Now, another time, just to give you a consistency on this, another time, in front of a class much as this one, I picked up a girl, put the electrodes in her hand, and started to ask her about this and that, and we find her sitting in front of a communication switchboard. Girl knows nothing about electronics. If you told her to describe to you how to answer a telephone, she would probably bog on it a bit. And yet, she's a communicator. She's a communicator in a system known as the space stations. The space stations exist out here in the solar system. They use the asteroids. It's a very peculiar system. This solar system has a planet which is broken up, the asteroid belt. It gives a low gravity platform for takeoff and so on, and that broken planet is of considerable interest as a space station. That is to say, a galactic jump. Now, there aren't any planets up at this end of the galaxy which form a good galactic entering spot for incoming transport and other ships. But this beautiful broken up planet here with a light gravity sun and so on makes a very ideal spot. 
and as a result, this area of the solar system got into prominence. It got into a little bit of prominence, and it's slightly a bone of contention. And there was the fourth invader force was here. The fifth invader force came in to use this area, and the name of this solar system is Space Station 33. They started to use this area without suspecting that the fourth invader force had been there for God knows how many skillion years, had been sitting down, and they have their installations up on Mars, and they have a tremendous screened operation. The Martian operation is a fascinating operation, simply because it has gone into 100% holding force. And it does everything it does with tremendous conversion, or sorry, conviction. It's sitting behind a defense screen of enormous size, and nobody, it's practically impossible to penetrate that except as a Thetan. And if you penetrate it as a Thetan, you go through the Martian screen, and they got you. End quote. That is straight L. Ron Hubbard talking straight to his people in 1952. I think this was October 1952 about how the universe really works. <laughs> this is not science fiction. This is not a fantasy. He was saying that this is the actual literal truth. And he talked about how he found this out by putting little girls on an e-meter and asking them leading questions, as he literally described himself in his own lecture. Um, and, of course, making evaluative statements to them about what they should think about what they were saying. So not only is his therapeutic technique for the birds, but his Matrix-like space opera delusional fantasies are also for the birds. And here is why. Uh, if you were to fact-check Hubbard, and I have, and many other people have, you will find that the claims that he makes about space and, and time and these kind of things are completely ludicrous nonsense. And the asteroid belt, for example, that circles our solar system between Mars and Jupiter is real. It does exist. And if you were to take all, that, all those asteroids and gather them all up and put them together, they would make up about 4% of the mass of our moon. They're tiny. There's nothing there. They are not a broken up planet. That's not how the asteroid belt was formed. We know this. We already, NASA scientists, they've already figured all this out many, many years ago. Hubbard just never got in on the loop on it and decided to make up his own nonsense about it. Okay, so uh, lastly, the, he did mention this thing about bodies in pawn, and pawn. And, and that is the term or expression that Hubbard invented or came up with for this business of sending a Thetan off to be an agent provocateur or, or an assassin or do some kind of you know, damage or shenanigans at a long distance. You take a person, let's say you, know, you got Batman here, and he is a body which is run by a Thetan. Well, you take his body and you lay it out and you put it in a sort of stasis um, field or a place where the body's not going to uh, degenerate as quickly as it would otherwise, and you lay it out and you put it to sleep in a sort of stasis uh, mode, and the Thetan who's running that body has been briefed and indoctrinated and set up to then listen so that when you give the body commands like go to Alpha Centauri or go to Space Station 33 and take over the wife of the premier of Bakwanistan, 
And you can give that command to this body and the Thetan will go do it. He'll go over to and, and take over. And, and then when he's done, he'll come back to his body. And the body has a connection to the Thetan or the Thetan has a connection to the body more, more accurately. So you could continue getting reports and feedback and information from the body even though the Thetan is off on the other side of the universe doing some kind of operation. He's still connected, and he can still hear when people are saying things to it, and he can still make it respond. So this would be a what's called a body in pawn. You know, you control the body here, but the Thetan's off somewhere else doing some kind of no good. And, um, and this is a concept that Scientologists believe is real, because if you think about it, why wouldn't it be? If, you, if you're a Thetan and you're, and you're you know, living forever and these kind of things are possible, then, of course, they probably have happened. And that's how Scientologists think about this stuff. So this is a great question to give a little window into some Scientology crazy that I thought you guys might be interested in. And uh, there you go. Chaz K. I've been out of Scientology since around the year 2000, and I have only just caught up with what's been going on with the tech. Any chance of a bit of a tech timeline update, please? Golden Age of Tech 1 and 2, clear, all the books being updated, are they much different? Briefing course removal, tech vols now missing from the course rooms. I find that really hard to believe. The long timers must be dazed and confused. I can't believe that the SHSBC is no longer delivered. Have I missed anything? Is the birthday game still going? Hey, yeah, it's been a while, huh? Yeah, a lot of crazy stuff has gone on. A lot of water has gone under the bridge in the, in the world of Scientology in the last 25 years. And this has been David Miscavige rewriting Scientology in his own image. This is how I describe what's been going on. Because Miscavige decided in 1995 that... It was his place to start making technical changes and alterations and revisions and deletions to Hubbard's work. And, um, and he's, you know, got a little lapel pin that says he speaks for Hubbard and he has all the power in Scientology. So why not? I mean, if he doesn't like something Hubbard said, why not go back and change it? He doesn't have to live with it. And, um, and that has been what the full revision of all of the training of Scientology in 1995. That was the Golden Age of Tech Phase 1. It had a Phase 2 in 2012 after, what is that, uh, 10, 17 years or something, uh, Miscavige decided that there were some revisions necessary to his grand vision of what Scientology training should look like because when he changed all the training, it was a total disaster. Miscavige is not a smart guy. I mean, he might have intelligence and he might even be relatively read, excuse me, but he's not educated and he does not understand science. He doesn't understand how science actually works. And he certainly doesn't understand or have anything resembling business acumen. <laughs> um, but he does have enough wits and he is canny enough to know that there are policies Hubbard wrote and certain issues and technical matters that Hubbard uh, put down that he didn't like or he didn't he, that were inconvenient to him in some fashion or were creating problems or were or were contradictory for whatever reason. And he decided, well, let's go in and change all of that. So Golden Age of Tech Phase 1 and Phase 2 were about changing training and auditing delivery. And Hubbard uh, would be rolling in his grave if he saw all the changes that Miscavige has made. I mean, no, no doubt about it. Miscavige, Hubbard would be 
absolutely furious with David Miscavige right now. If he were to come back, there, there's not a question in my mind that he would want Miscavige dead for what Miscavige has done to his life's work, you could say. <laughs> as bad as Hubbard's work was, it's been made worse by David Miscavige. So uh, that's what that's all about. The clear thing came and went. That was a big money grab. That was, let's send everybody back down to redo all their clear stuff. And so that was in the early to mid-2000s. And I think that's pretty much run its course now. And with a revision of the grade chart as part of the Golden Age of Tech, Miscavige put in place that you have to now read all the books. And he revised all the books. They went through and changed all of them. And one of the reasons for that was probably due to copyright laws and wanting to keep the books updated and copyrighted. So... Um, so they did that and every single one of Hubbard's books were revised in one fashion or another, some uh, to a great degree, others not so much. Some of the changes were positive too. I mean, let's not make no mistake. Hubbard's works were trash and they were very hard to read. Um, I mean, his, his ideas, as I talked about with John Atack in a recent podcast, they're nuts, you know, but, um, but Miscavige's changes haven't particularly made it any better. <laughs> so anyway, so you have that. Um, as far as the, um, yeah, the briefing course removal and the tech vols now missing, I mean, this is just, you know, again, Miscavige just sort of putting his, his firm control down on things. As all of this stuff is being revised and re-edited and, and will be re-released, it'll be repackaged and re-released, no, no question about it. It's a winning strategy and formula that he has. Winning only to a degree, though. I mean, in that it's succeeding because Scientology's still around, but it's it's going down uh, because of these these changes. Did not make a lot of people happy. Tons of people have left Scientology because of what Miscavige has been doing, um, because they consider that Hubbard was the pure source and Miscavige is not, and they should think that because that's what Hubbard wrote. You know, this this worship of David Miscavige is 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 a very huge aberration and an alteration of what Hubbard said to do. So um, so it's kind of interesting, you know, watching this whole thing play out. As far as I know, the birthday game is still going hot and heavy. I'm sure they've probably revised the rules a couple more times since I left. I've been out for enough years now that Scientology looks and feels a little different than when I was in it. And I'm not fully up to speed on all the things that have been happening in there because I really don't care that much, to be honest with you. Um, I'm not a Scientology purist. I don't care what Miscavige does with it because it's all junk. But um, but it is interesting. <laughs> and from that point of view, I'm happy to report on it. Um, but I but just so you guys know, I've got I've got no vested interest in this at all anymore. So um, so yeah, there will be more changes. I'm pretty sure the next big huge release will probably be uh, have to do with the church's policies, but he could re-release the briefing course or any number of other things. I mean, there's so many things in Scientology that you can use to to generate money and uh, an excitement. So um, so you know, expect more changes as time goes on. Melissa Maresca. After reading a press release from Scientology about their volunteer ministers, I'm curious exactly what are the, quote, many special areas, end quote, the VMs have been trained in to be able to assist in emergency situations. I wasn't aware that special training was provided to the VM to do anything other than assists in handing out food bought that morning from the corner store. 
do these Scientologists making the effort realize the only goal is a photo shoot opportunity? And Steve Wood. I have seen on Tony's underground bunker site many articles about whenever there is some type of global catastrophe that Scientology makes sure to insert themselves into the middle of these events. Do they really make any difference at all, or, as callous as this may sound, is this purely another opportunity to milk every occasion to show the world that they care and they are contributing when in fact they're not doing anything of the sort? All right, thank you very much for these two questions, and they're related, so I'm putting them together here. Uh, let's first go over the training that volunteer ministers can do. They are not required to do these courses, excuse me, before they go out to disaster relief sites, but um, this is the training for a volunteer minister, and the book is called The Scientology Handbook. It was originally published in the 1970s as The Volunteer Minister's Handbook. And it was of a similar format to how it is now, but they revised it. And there are a number of chapters. Each one is also released by Scientology as its own little booklet. But they put them all together in this great big tome, and it's this big hardcover book. Um, so you have the chapters of the book are the technology of study, the dynamics of existence, the components of understanding, the emotional tone scale, communication, assists for illnesses and injuries, answers to drugs, how to resolve conflicts, integrity and honesty, ethics and conditions, the cause of suppression, solutions for a dangerous environment, marriage, children, tools for the workplace, targets and goals, basics of organizing, investigations, and finally, Fundamentals of Public Relations. Now, that's a kind of impressive-sounding list of topics to know something about or learn about. I mean, communication, drugs, uh, how to resolve conflicts. It seems that if somebody had all these skills or had a skill set centered around these things, they'd be quite a formidable type of counseling-type person. I mean, they'd be able to resolve all kinds of issues and problems and difficulties, right? <laughs> Well, you might want to check out my Basics of Scientology series, where I actually am taking these things chapter by chapter. Since my university study and other things kind of got in the way, that, that series kind of got waylaid, and I need to pick back up on it after I finish my uh, uni studies. But I did do videos dedicated to the first three chapters of the book and broke down how stupid and nonsensical this stuff is. And how it doesn't really work and doesn't help people, but uh, Scientologists like to pretend it does. And under certain circumstances, in certain contexts, of course, you can help people. I mean, really, it's just a matter of sitting down and talking to them. That alone is going to give you more mileage than almost anything else you're going to do. But some of these techniques are actually harmful and destructive. And so I wouldn't encourage anybody to go read this stuff and try to use it. It's got all kinds of little curves and and messed up stuff in it. And uh, and it is destructive methods. They're, these are destructive methods. So that being said, um, this is what they're trained on, if they get trained at all. The assist stuff is, also, is always super, super important. But you can show somebody how to do an assist, like a touch assist or a nerve assist or a contact assist. Those are the three big ones. You can show somebody how to do all those in the course of about 15 minutes. It's really no big deal. You don't have to do a big deep dive study, and Scientologists generally don't when it comes to these assists. 
They read some technique. They read Hubbard's bullshit theory about it. And they think they know something about how to help people. And this is the kind of stuff Tom Cruise was ranting about when he was saying that we're the experts on mental health and we're the experts on helping people. And if you you know, were to stop at an accident site on the side of the road, we're the only ones who can bring any help, Tom Cruise says, says right? Well, you know, this is what he's talking about, and he's full of shit. Uh, okay, so you asked, um, you know, Steve and uh, Melissa, sorry, here, uh, about these VMs and are these really just photo shoots and photo ops at these disaster sites? And the fact of the matter is that that is exactly what they are. The Scientologists who go out there do have an intention to help, and good on them for doing it. But most of what they help with is logistical support because they're not trained. They are not professionals. They're not first responders. They're not disaster relief specialists. They're just a bunch of idiots who think they know something because L. Ron Hubbard told them they do. So they go out there and they mix and mangle. And, and sometimes they're way more distracting and, and not helpful. But, you know, just about anybody can carry boxes or, you know, run a chain line of of water bottles, you know, going to a place or, or boxes of food and, and supplies. And Scientologists set themselves up and try to help that way. And that is honest help. I can't really knock that. But let's not, you know, let's not uh, mix things up here too much because the church's only interest in this is for the photo op. They do not send Sea Org members out to these places to help. They do not pay for any of this. They only pay for the gold shoot crew to go out there to, with the cameras to take pictures of all this and then put it in Scientology publications to show how amazing and awesome Scientologists are. And of course, these photo shoots are always exaggerated and there's never really full truthful reporting because that, that would be, you know, a bit of a PR nightmare for them internally. Just in, you know, this is all about pumping up and keeping the membership happy so that they'll keep paying their money. That's what it's really all about. And um, so, yes, there is an intent to help on the part of the, of the volunteer ministers. Yes, some of them do know something about first aid because they've gone out and done some real training, not the Scientology training. But for the most part, they're just fumbling around and uh, don't really know what they're doing. From Columbia. Do you think that with all the study, auditing, and word clearing in Scientology, there is a possibility that members can have different or incorrect interpretations of concepts such as Thetans or the Xenu story or the dynamics. It seems to me that LRH did not fact-check himself and created a patch quilt of many different theories and called it Scientology, thus leaving many holes and ambiguities in his own writings. How does the Church of Scientology explain these lapses? Do members even notice? And if they do, how do they explain them? Or is the brainwashing machine so well-oiled as to not permit margin of error or thought? Well, you know, it was interesting because talking to John Atack in that podcast I, I referenced last week, we talked a little bit about how you do have to invest yourself in the material because Hubbard doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. There are certain things that he spells out very clearly. Let's not, let's, let's not mistake that. There are some things in Scientology that are super clear. But when it comes to the theory, when it comes to the axioms, when it comes to the logics, when it comes to when it comes to answering questions about the nature of the universe, when it comes to all the space opera crap and our past, how old the planet is, science, physics, geography, geology, anything having to do with any of this stuff I'm talking about, Scientology's for the birds. They, get, they got nothing. 
And Hubbard was just making stuff up as he went, as you heard in my when I quoted from him earlier in this um, episode. So, you know, he's just he just makes stuff up and he expects people to just believe him. And if there is a contradiction to what he says, you are told to find what word you didn't understand or you have to dive into some encyclopedia and go down a series of articles and figure it out for yourself so that it does make sense. And Hubbard was telling the truth, even if what he said was in direct contradiction to everything that established science has said. Right? That's, that is how Scientologists resolve this stuff. Is Hubbard is always the senior authority. And everything that he says has to make sense. If it contradicts everything else in the world, well, that's, you know, then they're all wrong. And Hubbard is right. Um, but you do have to invest yourself in it. And I think you'll find if you interrogate Scientologists on their beliefs in detail, you will find quite a bit, quite a bit of difference in understandings and how people would talk about Scientology principles because they're going to understand them differently because of everything I just said. So, yeah, there you go. Turd Ferguson. Did Hubbard say that Zenu was a psychiatrist? Did his utter condemnation of psychiatrists and psychologists begin with the mental health community's flat-out rejection of his pseudoscientific therapy? I suppose I'm trying to see if that event was what motivated him to make them the antagonists in his newly birthed ideology. I realize so many people for so many decades have been trying to pierce the veil into the true motivations behind a man who cultivated so much mystique and misinformation about himself. Yeah, you got that right. And um, uh, what I'll say on this one is that, yeah, it pretty much was Hubbard knocking the competition. Um, remember, 1950 psychiatry and psychology was vastly different from how it is today. It was more destructive. It was not very helpful. It was all about lobotomies and lithium injections and methadone and, you know, a lot of chemicals. There had not yet been any kind of work done on the brain um, like we have now. I mean, neuroscience was was a lot more primitive back then. And, and, it's, and it still is. I mean, get, don't get me wrong. We've still got so far to go in these fields. So far to go. But... I'm going to say that we have made some immensely important progress in the last 50 years, and, um, and, sci and psychiatry and psychology are not as barbaric as they used to be. So, you know, we have to acknowledge that. But at the time Hubbard was critiquing psychiatry, some of his critiques were spot on. They were quite barbaric, and they were doing really damaging things to people. So... You know, so I have to kind of say that, that that's the truth. Now, that being said, it's not the truth now, not the same way. And Scientology still uses all these lines. They still talk about lobotomies. They still talk about lithium. They still talk about transorbital leucotomies and butchering people and things like that. And psychiatry doesn't really engage in that kind of activity as much anymore. I say as much, I mean, really hardly at all. And the way they do these techniques is vastly different than the way they used to do them. I mean, the ice pick lobotomies and all that. That's, that's the barbaric past. Those are the days of bedlam. That stuff has all been put to rest. So um, I'm not trying to be like this, you know, huge defender of everything about psychiatry and it's all wonderful, but I am trying to be honest about it. So um, that all being said, some of Hubbard's critiques, like I said, were spot on, but his alternatives 
to what psychiatry, you know, okay, well, they're butchering you. So instead, you should do some Dianetics and go ahead and hypnotize yourself and hypnotize other people. Give yourself suggestions that you feel good or feel better. And that'll, that'll solve all your problems, right? I mean, come on. It's not like he was offering a very healthy or viable alternative is, is kind of where we go with this. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, the two things that Hubbard couldn't deal with with psychiatry were, one, his vindictive nature uh, made it so that when they did reject him, if that's true that they rejected him, and I think it is true, then um, he just wasn't going to, he just was not going to let that rest. Hubbard was not a turn-the-other-cheek kind of guy. And um, in fact, he, he bragged about how vindictive he was and how he was going to get them. And uh, second, he was knocking the competition because the only uh, he was putting himself out there with Dianetics as a viable science of the mind, right? The modern science of mental health. And he and that's what he wanted people to think of Dianetics as. So there you go. All right, let's do some flash answers. Ian, the Scientology website states it is for spirituality and freedom for all. Would you say there is a pattern of cults using positivity slash truth to maintain the lies? Yes, absolutely. That's exactly how it works. There's a little bit of truth and a whole lot of lies <laughs> laid on top of it, right? And so the little kernel of truth pretty much gets obscured and, and done away with in the in, with all the false bullshit that gets laid on top of it. But they'll use that little kernel of truth, especially at the lower introductory beginning levels of any group, any cult, any activity like this. That's what they're doing. Michael Yoder, have you ever heard of anyone in Scientology living with HIV? I looked into it some and found that doctors in medicine, other than psych drugs, are fine. But how would the Church of Scientology deal with a person with HIV? Would they consider them as 1.1? HIV is not just a gay disease, so how would the church deal with that person? Did LRH talk about it at all? Would they try to just get rid of them as PTS? Hey, thanks for the question, Michael. And yeah, they would deal with them as PTSs because uh, that's what the text says to do. And they would also sex check the shit out of them. Because they wouldn't, they'd want to find out where the HIV came from. And if the person was gay or had, you know, LGBT type proclivities, well, that's a crime pretty much in Scientology and they wouldn't be down with that. So they would want to ferret out all the truth of it. And they would say, of course, that they're doing this for the person's own good and make them pay for it. But that's how they would go about dealing with that as, as near as I can tell. Taffy Sinclair, do you think the pandemic has contributed to Scientology losing members? I would imagine not being able to be on course or attend fundraising events may have helped those under the radar finally cut ties with the cult. Yes, Taffy, I am absolutely positive that that's what happened over the last year and that they did lose members, but that's just conjecture on my part. Um, so, you know, because they couldn't proselytize, they couldn't hold their events or do any of the retention type activities that they need to do. Now, it's, there's a limited degree of that because, of course, a big part of how Scientology retains people is through emotional blackmail with the threat of shunning or disconnection from your family or friends. So if your family or friends are still in and you're on the fence, you got to stay in if you want to stay connected with them, right? So that's, um, that's a pretty big, big thing for them. Um, but anyway, like I said, my conjecture is that, yeah, I'm, I'm positive they lost a bunch of folks this last year. 
All right. So that is our show for this week, folks. Thank you very much for coming around and listening to me babble on here. I do appreciate your support and your, um, well, your support, really. If you are digging the show, if you're liking what I'm doing here, you know, check out Critical Merchandise. It's a way of getting shirts and mugs and hats and stuff like that with some pretty cool sayings on it. Link is below in the uh, description section to this video on YouTube. And of course, you can always uh, support the channel through Patreon or through PayPal. Links to those are also below. And this show, as I am uh, always have to say near the end of the episodes here, this is entirely fan-funded. You guys are my lifeline, and put it that way. So I really do appreciate your support. I hope that I am um, putting things out here for you that are uh, useful, helpful, entertaining, and educational. And if I am, throw me some love. All right, guys, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.